Thanks, Ian. Morning, everyone. I wonder where you were on Thursday. It's one of those uh, memorable things. When, when historical events happen, uh, those of us who are getting older uh, are able to say, I was there. I was doing that. I remember it. And uh, I was driving back from Kendall, and there was an accident on the other side. Uh, it didn't look particularly bad, but the traffic was stopped. And uh, as I was driving, it was actually quite uncommon. Most of the time I have the radio on. Um, it tends to be on frivolous things on talk sport uh, or classic FM. Uh, and lately, uh, over you know the previous few days, uh, because of all the political things, it was Radio 4. But the radio was off. And uh, as I was driving, obviously cars were stopped. But then I suddenly realized people were coming out of cars. And I thought, you know, sometimes there's, and, and some of you have been caught on the motorway, on the M6 in the last uh, day or so. Sometimes you know you're going to have to wait for four, five, six hours. The weather's nice. People do get out of the cars. But it wasn't that kind of a... And I thought, oh, that's a bit strange. Why are people getting out of cars? And then I just pressed the button on, on the news and the national anthem uh, was coming on. So there I was. I don't know where you were on Thursday. And then suddenly, everything unraveled. And of course, this, this was something that was to be expected. It was, to, was supposed to be happening at some point in, in our history. And I remember last year reading some leaked plans about Operation London Bridge, and I thought, wow, this is going to be quite momentous when it will eventually happen. And yet that moment is upon us. And it's been really fascinating because, you see, the nation, probably more united than ever. I'll tell you what I loved, seeing the footage later on of what was happening at lunchtime in Parliament. Just uh, members of the two different parties, little notes being passed around, the collaboration between the two sides, just that sense of unity. And almost the two political sides, well, not two, the two sides, <laughs> the two divides, laying down arms, united in celebrating something that unites us all, which is quite beautiful. And there's a mixture of thanksgiving, of joy, and again, Parliament reflected that, Theresa May's story and the laughter that was there, but also some very moving speeches. If you didn't get a chance to hear Tim Farron's speech, well, if there's ever been an evangelist in Parliament, Tim did a great job. How do we process all of this? I was going to preach to you about Adam and Eve this morning, but I thought it probably suitable to have a little bit of a change. And I guess most of us would realize that through very credible sources, apart from just the Christmas speeches, which I think I'm going to miss most, more than anything else, is the sense that Her Majesty had a real faith, genuine faith. It wasn't just part of the position that she held, and the protocol and the etiquette that was attached to it, it wasn't just a nominal faith. It was a real faith. It was very clear to those who had a chance to get very close to her and witness that and have those conversations. 
And really what I want us to do this morning is to track some of the characteristics of her reign that's on one track, if you remember, if you imagine a train track. And on the other track, it's the biblical theology that underpinned that. So that actually, it isn't just looking admiringly at a human being, thinking, weren't they great? Let's emulate that. But instead, looking at a follower of Christ, a Christian who lived a life according to God's word, and to look at that word and what inspired her, and see what God is speaking to us, to me and you this morning, about those same things. For me, I continually have this feeling, I'm turning incredibly nostalgic. <laughs> the more I advance in age, the more I'm turning nostalgic. I sometimes think, I wish we wouldn't have the internet. <laughs> I wish we wouldn't have many of the things that we have now that were supposed to make us better, that aren't better. And for me... Her passing away, it's an end of an era. Philip Larkin, the poet laureate, wrote these words in 1977 at her Silver Jubilee, I think. And they're beautiful words. He said, in times when nothing stood but worsened and grew strange, there was one constant good. She did not change. And is that incredible stability, faithfulness, steadfastness. There's the one thing that probably stands out so amazingly over those years that have passed. And it is because of a relationship with God. At a coronation, the most reverend Geoffrey Fisher, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, reminded her of these words. You are this day consecrated to be our head and prince. That being rich in faith and blessed in all good words, you may reign with him who is the king of kings. Not just a corny line, a deep truth. And that's what she did. Let's track to the scriptures. If you can either listen because it's not long verses, or you can turn with me to Esther chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. There's an incredible parallel, really. And, and the first thing that really strikes me is a sense of personal responsibility. Queen Esther was a young person in exile, taken away from her people and being brought to Persia. She was an immigrant. And the king of Persia falls out with his wife. He, she is uh, retired, I'm using a euphemism, from her role as queen. And he has a beauty context through which he's trying to recruit a new queen. And Esther is the one that is chosen to be the queen. Here, here are the verses, Esther 2, 17 to 18. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made a queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This was an incredible situation for Esther. She was an unlikely candidate. She, she was a foreigner. She wasn't part of the Persian people. 
She didn't belong to the political or economical elite of the time. She wasn't a socialite. She was just a humble girl. And actually, although the king didn't know this, she was a Jewish immigrant. And yet, because God's hand was upon her, she was chosen for that role. And up to this point, you think that's a beautiful fairy tale of somebody who shouldn't end up in a position getting the position. But it's more than that. Because several years down the line, she's able to be used by God in a significant way, saving her own people from extinction. Because God placed her in that role. Because she had a personal responsibility. Queen Elizabeth II was probably never meant to come to the throne. Due to her uncle's misdemeanors and her father's very early and untimely death, she ends up at such a young age having to step up and stand up and be counted. And I think there's a beautiful parallel And we will never know, really, spiritually speaking, you know, how much God had used her in all these years in being in that position, being raised to be put in there. Just like Queen Esther was brought to God by his grace and mercy onto the throne to be able to influence history for the Jewish people. But here's a question for me and you. How are we taking seriously that sense of having a personal responsibility? I really believe that every single one of us who are following and submitting to God's plans are supposed to have a sense of destiny in the place where God has placed us. Esther played her role. Her Majesty the Queen played her role. What about me and you? Are we simply where we are and doing what we do totally haphazardly and without any sense of purpose and destiny? Or can we open our eyes and ears and think to ourselves, God has placed me here. The people that I meet, the things that I do, this is where God wants me to be. Because that's what it seemed to be for both Esther and Her Majesty. The other thing that really strikes me is his servant humility. In Matthew chapter 3, there's an incident in which John the Baptist is meeting with Jesus. John was incredibly, he was, he was really a paradox in many ways. Because John was a prophet who stood against the religious system of the time. And he was forceful. He, he, he really wasn't seeker friendly. <laughs> whatever way you want to look at it. He, he was pretty rough and ready, and his message was cutting. He was basically calling people to repentance. He was calling people back to God. He was calling people to an authentic faith. And what's paradoxical is that normally people like that should not have a following because it's a hard message and a, not a particularly nice person that leads the way. Many people responded to the message and they started getting drawn into the wilderness and there they would be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And at that time, as he was baptizing, this is happening, Matthew 3, 
verses 11 to 12. John, when he sees that Jesus is coming towards him, he's saying to the people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is the unbelievable humility that you see in John. At no point is John trying to build himself a following. There's no chance for John to build a mega church or to start a new movement. Because he's not interested in that. His only interest is to fulfill his role as the forerunner of Jesus. He's quite content to be the best supporting act. And he does that with incredible humility. And only those of us who have gotten anywhere near a position of power would begin to understand the lure and temptation that power brings to those who suddenly have a crowd and a following in front of them. It's real, it's toxic, it's deadly. Yet John resisted it. Because he had that incredible servant humility, he knew his identity, he knew his role, and he was absolutely, totally content with that. And he maintained that humility with great clarity. He didn't even let any room for people to speculate that he was anything else than a forerunner and a servant of the one who is not even worthy to carry his sandals. And he talked about Jesus. And again, this is something that People keep talking about the incredible humility that her majesty had. There's a really interesting, whatever you make of the crown, how much historical accuracy there is and how much is not historically accurate. I, I have a theory, I think, you know, probably because of litigious action, I, I think probably a lot of it is very, very close to history. I don't think Netflix would have dared to try to get themselves embroiled in a in a lawsuit. But The Crown, for those of you who are not familiar, is is a series that looks at uh, Her Majesty's reign from from, from the beginning until now. But there is one particular scene that is really interesting. It's um, in in one of the early uh, episodes. And uh, Queen Elizabeth travels to Ceylon on a diplomatic tour and she appoints her sister, Princess Margaret, to be her representative for some of the minor engagements that were happening at the time. You know that there was a real contrast between the two. And uh, while Her Majesty was very thorough and very clear and very uh, understated, Princess Margaret just loved flair and uh, loved to speak her mind, joke with the press, and sometimes even probably ended up belittling some of the political dignities of the time. And there is one scene where Winston Churchill comes to rebuke the princess and relieve her of her duties as the queen's representative. And he explains to her why he does that. And the conversation goes along the lines of this. Churchill is saying, Your Royal Highness, when you appear in public performing official duties, you are not you. And of course, Margaret replies, of course I am me. And Churchill replies, no. The crown, that's what they've come to see. Not you. And this is a thing that you get all, all throughout 
the historical accounts, the queen almost let her own personal life aside and embraced the duty and the calling that was bestowed upon her that was so important. And it would have taken an incredible amount of humility. I mean, some of you have lived, you know, probably a little bit older than me through the days of spitting image. And so many times, probably in the late 70s and 80s, when comedians just had a field day mocking her. We've all lived through the many, many front pages of the Express particularly, with many things that must have been so hurtful for her to see. Many accusations she could have never defended. Many times she never had a chance to speak out and put across her point of view or her side of the story. You know how much humility it takes for you to be accused of something you've never done and for you to shut up and not say a thing. It must be the depth of humility to be able to do that. And that's just one side of it. And you see it in John the Baptist, and I think this is a biblical characteristic. That humility doesn't come from us. We are proud. We are arrogant. We are selfish. We, 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 because of sin, we're so tainted with this virus of selfishness. It runs through our veins. And it's only through this, metaphorically speaking, the blood transfusion from Jesus where the life of Christ begins to live through us that the selfishness gets pushed out and humility gets brought him from him inside of us. And I think that was the secret. The secret of humility is actually the way Christ began to live his life through her. How are we doing with humility? I think pride is raging publicly and privately, but in subtle ways nowadays. My point of view, what I want, consumerism is probably one of the most poignant signs. I want it like that, and if you don't do it like that, I'm going to just bail out on you. It is all about me and about all about what I want. Never mind being part of a body that, you know, we have to do things together. It's just all about me. Or the attention seeking. Making a drama about everything. Pride, I think, takes subtle nuances nowadays. And yet is prevalent throughout society. And I don't think the church is exempt from it. Do you know, I think that's why we admire her so much. Because this is something we wish we would have. And battle with. That's why we look at somebody like John the Baptist. And his relentless humility. In the face of a crowd who could have adored him. He chooses to say, no. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And I think this is a call for us. To make our lives less about ourselves, less about our wants, and more about him and what he wants. You know, maybe, maybe this is our mission. Maybe that's who we should be. It is all about the crown. Not that crown, but the crown. It's all about him. It's not about me. 
It's not about the crowd hearing what I want to say. It's not about people liking me. It's all about him and people knowing and seeing him and seeing that sense of beauty that is found in him. There's another flip side to pride. Our pride is our greatest hindrance to our evangelism. We don't want to share about Jesus because we fear what people might say. Either they might not like us, they might dismiss us, they might think we're nutters, and we just don't do it. And I think we almost need to pull ourselves back from that and actually say, it's about the crown. It's about Jesus. I cannot but do this. This is why I'm here. To share about him. It's not about people liking me. Or loving me. It's about people hearing about him. And discovering him. And that's why that humility is so striking. The next thing that really strikes me. Is the passionate perseverance. Right away till the end. She kept on going. She kept on going. I remember when the Dutch monarchy. Had the changeover. People were asking the question. Is it possible? that Her Majesty would just step down and hand over the reign to Prince Charles, now King Charles. And those who were close to her said, not in a million years. She was carrying her duty right till the very end. And it reminds me of the beautiful picture that is found when Paul is talking to Timothy, to his young apprentice, to Timothy 4, 7 to 8. Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but also to them that have loved his appearing. Paul had that relentless pursuit of serving Jesus. Paul had a very topsy-turvy life. He started as a promising young scholar, a leader to be in Israel. And suddenly and unexpectedly, he has this incredible encounter with the resurrected Christ who he was persecuting on the road of Damascus. And his life changed totally. Instead of living the comfortable life of being a theological, spiritual influencer in Jerusalem, he ends up beating the roads of the Roman Empire at the time, all the way into Asia Minor and Greece, all the places surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, going from place to place, in most places very unwelcomed, where everybody hated him. The Jews hated him because they thought he had lost his mind and he'd become an apostate and uh, and, and the false preacher. And then the heathens, the Romans and the Greeks hated him because obviously he was talking about some nonsense that didn't make any sense in everything that he was saying. He went to places where he was rejected by his own, undermined by the Corinthian church, who were looking at him and saying, is is he a teacher? He's nothing. We've got better than him. He was imprisoned in Philippi. And you know the rest of the story. And yet, Paul just 
went on and on and on and on relentlessly, pursuing his desire to make Jesus known to both the Jews and the Gentiles, breaking down all the barriers. That relentless sense of mission that was in Paul, going through the hardships. Why? It's because of this, and this is a secret he's passing on to his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy. It is because the crown that was going to come his way, not from the people, but from the Lord Jesus himself, who is the righteous judge. Listen, Paul was not a fool. He didn't go through everything that he did in a sort of stoic way, thinking, well, whatever. No, he did it because he had a vision of the future. He had a picture of the finishing line. He knew exactly where he wanted to be. And that was receiving that crown of righteousness from the Lord, the righteous judge, on that day. And I really believe that this would be the same true for Her Majesty. Consistency is underrated, terribly underrated nowadays. And again, that's one of the things we admire about her, her consistency. And the Apostle Paul teaches us that life with Christ is a life of consistency and perseverance. And the challenge for us is is, is, is at a devotional level. How consistent am I in my devotional life? I keep being stunned at football fans. You hear of people who are football fans with a family, who are season ticket holders who go to every single home game and they go to every single away game. And I keep looking at that and I'm thinking, that's some dedication. Time, finances, energy, and I'm being put to shame. You know, when it comes to my devotional reading of scripture every day and that discipline, that time spending prayer with God, attending, connecting with church, connecting with connect group, serving in any way. Consistency is underrated. And yet you see both in Paul's life and in Madison's life that sense of pressing through, keeping going when it's tough, and for the right motivation. It's not for people. Unfortunately, even in church, so much of what we do is driven by wanting to impress others, get our kicks. And again, I want to say that's always the wrong motivation to get involved in serving in anything. If it's about me and wanting to be known, wanting to be seen, wanting to be applauded, it's the wrong thing. And I'll I'll tell you the truth. It doesn't last anyway. You know, you're probably going to get less applause, and more criticism because we live in a fallen world. And that's why we need to fix our eyes on the right motivation. Why is that? Because it's something that's eternal and it's something that God gives. God is not like man. Mind changes their opinion. I could preach something every Sunday that's going to wind up 30% of you. And I could, if if I was intentional and just wanted to preach something to wind people up just for the sake of it, 
you know, you could, I could probably get a sack in six weeks' time. And who was popular six weeks before could be very unpopular six weeks later. Because we change our mind. It happens everywhere. With God, it doesn't work like that. God sees what's in our heart. God sees what other people don't. And God is a fair and just God. And he gives that crown of righteousness to every single one of us who runs that race of following Christ and pleasing him. And it's a great reminder for me, and I hope it's a great reminder for you. What are you living for? Are you living for your own self-satisfaction? Are you living for people's approval, acceptance? Or are you living for his pleasure? So that when we are there on that day, we will receive that crown of righteousness. Because all that it mattered in this life is to live for his renown. And that way, we live every day without a worry, without fear, without anxiety. We know who we live for. We know what we live for. And that gives us that sense of perseverance in there. But I think it's a choice. I don't think we can have both. And Jesus hints at that. You know, he often says those words. Those who want to receive the applause, I'm paraphrasing, of those on earth will lose the reward in heaven. Choose your audience. Where do you want to be known and loved? The two don't work together. I'll skip to the last point, Chris. I want to speak about that incredible high confidence. And we finish with this picture. And last year when I saw about Operation London Bridge, I thought, Lord, what shall I preach when that moment comes, if it comes in my lifetime? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. King Uzziah was a well-loved king. And he did many things that the Lord was pleased with. He did many things that were a blessing to the nation. But he overstepped the mark, stepped into a role, spiritual role that wasn't his, and was struck with leprosy. And then later on, he ends up dying. But at his death, there is a sense of loss of a good king. And there's the grief and the fear about the future. And right at that very time, God speaks to his prophet, to his servant, Isaiah. And God doesn't give him a motivational pep talk. Instead, he gives him a revelation, a vision of who he is. And he takes him into that vision, into the temple, and shows him his majesty, his power, his holiness. The encouragement doesn't come from the human realm. The encouragement comes from a divine revelation. 
And we can assess what King Charles says in his speeches. We can listen to what all those who maybe know him better and suppose what kind of a king he will be. But those are not encouragements we build our life upon. We can listen to Prime Minister Truss and her measures and try to find our confidence in that. But it's not from the earthly realm that true confidence should come from, but from a divine revelation. That's what will give us strength. That's what will dry up the tears. That's what will bring hope as we step forward. It is seeing the Lord Almighty, His Majesty, the King of Kings, enthroned. And His glory filling the temple with angels bowing down and worshipping Him and crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. That vision of a mighty, sovereign God who loves us is what will keep us going in these times. If we look inside or if you look around, we're likely to be disappointed. If we lift up our eyes and see the Lord, that's where our strength will come from. That's where our confidence is rooted in in the right way. That was her confidence. It wasn't in herself. It was in him. These are her words on one occasion. She said, pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. God give me wisdom and strength. It's all about him. And that's where our confidence is this morning. I'm going to ask Dave and and the rest of the band just to come up. And we're going to finish with singing, which is one of my (laughs) loved hymns, Abide With Me. It is very poignant, probably historically. It was sung at... Her grandfather's funeral. And I think her grandfather was the significant spiritual influence, if you really want to, for those of you who are history buffs, if you want to track a little bit more, delve a little bit into that. I think her father was an incredibly, genuinely devout man, and I think he instilled some of that faith, and he was probably the most significant spiritual influence for her, King George V. And this was performed at his funeral, and later on it was sung at the Queen's wedding as well. The story of the hymn is quite interesting, and there's two versions, as it tends to be in history. One thing is for sure, it was Scottish, so those of you who are Scottish can be proud of that wonderful contribution, and it was written in the 19th century, and the author who wrote it there's two, two, two variations of that. One variation is that Light wrote this hymn as he was conducting his final church service in September 19, 1847, suffering from tuberculosis, and he would die a couple of months later. The other story that uh, the, observ- the spectator put out on the 3rd of October 1925 
reported that actually the hymn was written 27 years earlier. And they suggested that Light wrote the hymn in 1820 after visiting a sick friend of his by the name of William Augustus Lahont. And as his friend lay on the deathbed, apparently he kept saying to Light, abide with me. And that kind of triggered that line and contributed. And then Light wrote the hymn based on that phrase and gave the lyrics to the deceased family. We don't really know what the real version of it. One thing is for sure. It reminds us of the two discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus. You can find it in Luke 24, where unbeknowingly to them, they were in the company of Jesus when their hearts were downcast and discouraged because the one in whom they believed had died such a cruel death on the cross. Jesus was was with them, but they didn't recognize him. And then as the evening drew near, they said to him, abide with us, for it is towards the evening and the day is spent. There's echoes of that in this hymn. On the penultimate verse, we see that parallel from 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where Paul is saying, Oh, death, talking about resurrection. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? So it's a hymn that is soaked in hope, rooted in the unshakable truth that God, the king of the universe, is still on the throne. And he's inviting people like me and you to come and follow him, to come and submit to him, to come and serve him. May that invitation be what drives us closer to him in these days. Let us stand together.